welcome to this Pure Voice panel discussion on immunoglobulin A nephropathy and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. J. Radhakrishnan and Laden Zand. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials. Hello, this is J. Radhakrishnan, and I'm a nephrologist at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Welcome to this activity, the title of which is Investigating Novel Approaches and Unmet Needs in the Management of Glomerular Diseases. Joining me for this session is Dr. Laudan Zand. She's a nephrologist from the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We will begin with the first presentation and the title of which is Progress Against Proteinuria, Applying Novel Approaches in IgA Nephropathy. So the first question to Dr. Zand would be, can you tell us about the pathophysiology of IgA nephropathy and then once you make a diagnosis, how do you prognosticate as to what the patient's going to do over the next several years? Absolutely. Um, so IgA nephropathy results from increased production of galactose-deficient IgA1, and that in turn results in production of antibodies against these galactose-deficient IgA. And that in turn forms immune complexes that can get deposited in the uh, mesangium of the kidney and cause mesangial cell proliferation. And this typically is mediated by endothelin 1 and angiotensin um, 2. And that in turn then results in downstream effect, which is increased inflammation, extracellular matrix production, changes in the cytoskeleton of the podocytes and endothelial cell dysfunction, which then in turn results in uh, damage to the filtration barrier, which then proteinuria and hematuria can ensue, in addition to interstitial inflammation. And ultimately, all of that inflammation can result in scarring and fibrosis and decline in the kidney function. And in order to be able to make a diagnosis of IgA nephropathy, really the gold standard is to do a biopsy. Uh, we still do not have any validated biomarkers that would allow us to make a diagnosis of IgA short of doing a kidney biopsy. And obviously once the diagnosis has been made, we always like to know what is going to happen to the patient, what's the prognosis. And now we have this international IgA nephropathy uh, prediction tool that can help us with that uh, question. That it can tell you what the rate of progression of the kidney disease would be typically in about five years. It's important to remember though that this prediction tool is not meant to make decisions regarding who should be treated, but rather to allow you to have a discussion with the patient of what the renal outcome may be for that particular patient. Dr. Radhakrishnan, if you could comment on the clinical significance of proteinuria in patients with IgA nephropathy. Thanks, Lodan. So it's, it's clear that in 2023, that the lower the proteinuria in, on a time average fashion, the lower the risk of progression uh, to kidney failure. For example, in this uh, study from the uh, Toronto Registry, if you have a pro time average proteinuria under 0.3 grams, although there is a very, very small risk of progression, but it contrasts very sharply to a patient who has over three grams uh, per day on a time average basis where the progression to kidney failure may be as high as 60%. And correspondingly, no matter what the level of proteinuria is at the time of presentation, if you are able to achieve remission, which arbitrarily is defined as less than one gram a day, 
your prognosis will dramatically change compared to patients who do not achieve similar levels of proteinuria reduction. In fact, this has become such an important point, lowering proteinuria, that the FDA and other regulatory bodies have accepted reduction of proteinuria as a surrogate endpoint in clinical trials of IgA nephropathy. What are the recommended approaches to managing patients with IgA nephropathy, and what do you think is the current role for systemic therapies in IgA nephropathy? Yeah, so when we think about, you know, management of patients with IgA nephropathy, and I would like to go over our, the most recent guidelines from the KDGO from 2021, the majority of patients have this slowly progressive uh, course, and uh, the, you know, the uh, recommended uh, initial treatment is really to try and uh, uh, optimize the supportive care of at least minimum of three months, but some would say up to three to six months. And the goal of the supportive care really is to try and lower the proteinuria by conservative measures, which would be tight blood pressure control, maximizing the dose of ACE inhibitor or ARB. More recently, we think about SGLT2 inhibitors, and I think we'll have a discussion about that shortly. In addition to lifestyle modification, including weight management and obviously addressing cardiovascular risk. Uh, once you have done that after about three to six months, if your patient continues to be heavily proteinuric, consider enrolling the patient in a clinical trial. And if that's not available to you, then certainly you have to have a discussion with your patient uh, about uh, considering the role of a corticosteroid. Uh, what the factors you want to take into account is, well, how much fibrosis and scarring does the patient have? And does glucocorticoid play a role in here? The KDGO tells us to specifically look at the GFR. I personally, in my practice, like to also take a look at biopsy and look at the degree of scarring. And certainly, you want to also balance that with the side effect profile from glucocorticoids, which could be you know, weight gain and activation of a latent infection. And so based off of that, if you think your patient, um, the risk profile is acceptable and there is not advanced scarring, then that would be a situation when you can certainly consider use of glucocorticoids. And part of the reason that we um, there's so much emphasis on using supportive care in patients with IgA nephropathy are based off of the results of the stop IgA trial. Um, this study, uh, the one part that was striking was that before randomizing the patient to whether they got supportive care or addition of immunosuppression, these patients all underwent uh, aggressive supportive care for about six months. And up to 30%, I think about like 28% of the patients could not be randomized because the protein urea had improved so much. So that tells us that use of supportive care can go a long way in patients with IG nephropathy. And moreover, when they randomized the patient into getting supportive care or addition of immunosuppression, whether it was just corticosteroids or addition of cyclophosphamide to the corticosteroids followed by azathioprine, and that was uh, primarily dependent on the um, starting GFR, addition of immunosuppression really uh, did not result in preservation of renal function down the line. So they had two primary endpoints of full clinical remission, and then a secondary primary endpoint that was decreased of more than 50 mLs per minute uh, at three years. And even though there was more full clinical remission in the group that got immunosuppressive therapy, this was primarily driven by a reduction in proteinuria. But when you looked at the change in GFR or whether there was a difference between the two groups of how many had more decrease of more than 15 mLs per minute, there really was no difference. 
And then they went on to take a closer look at the uh, these patients in the stop IGA trial a few years later, looking at patients who had a higher baseline GFR versus those that had a lower baseline GFR and looking at the role of addition of immunosuppression. And ultimately, they found the same results. So even though addition of immunosuppression did result in reduction in proteinuria, that did not translate into a, uh, a change in the GFR uh, down the line. And so um, based off of that result, there is so much emphasis now on use of uh, supportive care and sort of the enthusiasm to considering immunosuppression it just sort of waned. Um, but then we had the results of the testing trial. So there was a testing one when they used high-dose corticosteroids. And as most are aware, this was terminated early because of the risk of adverse events. And so the investigators went on to uh, do a second part of the trial using a lower dose of corticosteroids uh, for about a couple of months and then tapering that over uh, the next uh, six to nine months. And so this graph over here um, shows us the outcome of these patients, both in the overall cohort and then also based on whether they were in the high dose or the lower dose corticosteroid group. And um, if you look at the primary outcome, which was um, incidence of 40% reduction in GFR, renal failure and death due to renal failure, corticosteroid use was um, protective, was advantageous. There was lower rate of that. And then if you specifically looked at uh, rate of <clears throat> requiring dialysis <clears throat> or transplantation, still addition of uh, the uh, methylprednisolone uh, was uh, protective. If you're looking at uh, patients who were in the full dose group, there was significantly higher rate of adverse events, and that primarily included risk of uh, severe infections in addition to um, GI bleeds. But then if you look at the lower um, dose of corticosteroids, this uh, reduced significantly, uh, but still was slightly higher than the placebo. Dr. Radhakrishna, if you can comment on the role of novel therapies in patients with IgA nephropathy. Yes, thank you. So I think uh, until now, it was basically a situation of famine for patients with IgA nephropathy where very few treatment options were available. And now we are in a, a feast situation because we have now two FDA-approved uh, therapies and many in the pipeline, including phase three therapies. And I'll talk to you a little bit about each of these. So this is an important study. This looked at targeted released budosonide versus placebo. This is called the Nefigard. It's a phase three trial. And they looked at patients with who are at high risk of progression and gave them nine months of this therapy and then compared the proteinuria reduction uh, between placebo and the active drug. And you can see that the uh, patients who received the active drug had a 31% decline in proteinuria compared to only a 5% decline in proteinuria in the placebo arm. So the part B of the study, which looks at GFR slopes, is still uh, ongoing, and hopefully the results will be out very soon. As expected, uh, although uh, budosonide is topical, it releases budosonide in the Peyer's patch, around the Peyer's patches in the ileum, but a small amount is usually absorbed. And you can see in terms of side effects, most of the side effects can be attributed to uh, corticosteroid uh, effects from a systemic basis. You can see hypertension, edema, and so on. But it's important to note that the risk of these effects were very, very low, about 10% uh, for the most part. 
The other drug that is also FDA approved is Parsentan, and this is the PROTECT study, which is also a phase three study. And here too, they looked at the primary efficacy endpoint of proteinuria reduction versus the ARB herbisartan. And if you look at the side effect profile, what was very important, I think, is uh, Sparsentan is a dual endothelin and an ARB in one molecule. So previous studies looking at endothelin A receptor blockade had a fairly high incidence of edema. And fortunately, in this trial, not a big difference. And the rates of discontinuation, too, were very, very low. So it's a very, very well-tolerated drug in patients with IgA nephropathy. Now, we, we are also in the midst of a number of clinical trials looking at the, the four-hit uh, pathway uh, in terms of pathogenesis of IgA nephropathy. Atrocentan showed a reduction of proteinuria in an interim analysis of about 43%. And Iptacopan, the factor B inhibitor, also reduced proteinuria. And then finally, the lectin pathway inhibitor, narsoplumab, had a reduction of proteinuria. So all very promising therapies. One should not forget that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, as you can see with the DAPA-CKD study, which showed that the composite endpoint was reduced by almost 70 to 80% in patients with IgA nephropathy. And this included a GFR decline of more than 50%, uh, the appearance of end-stage kidney disease or kidney death. Dr. Radhakrishna, if you can tell us what's your approach of using all these novel therapies, and now we have two FDA-approved drugs, how do you go about using those in your clinical practice? Yes, it's getting quite confusing. I do get a lot of phone calls from practicing nephrologists, you know, around the country, you know, and saying, you know, hey, I've got these two new drugs, you know, FDA-approved. What is your rationale of choosing one over the other? And my comment would be that you can easily combine both these drugs, and they are completely different in the pathway of IgA nephropathy. You know, sparsentan is is a very distal, uh, uh, you know, player, whereas uh, burosinide is 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 shown to reduce the levels of you know the abnormally galactosylated IgA. So the idea is that I look at these patients just like you do. I strategize them, saying that okay, if there's a lot of inflammation in the biopsy. Maybe steroids is the way to go. If there's not too much inflammation. Or I'm transitioning from a steroid, a systemic steroid. Maybe I'd like to transition them over to bedosonide. But most of my patients right now who are starting, I'm going to use the combination of both sparsentan and bedosonide and then wean them off bedosonide after nine months to see how they do. And then continue with the sparsentan as foundation therapy. The second group would be patients who are on an ARB and, uh, or who have seen steroids and they're still heavy proteinuria. I would then switch them over to sparsentan to see if there's an additional benefit of lowering proteinuria with this drug. So um, it is going to get confusing, but I think the, the me message here is that the earlier you treat them to get the proteinuria down, these patients will do better in the long term. Absolutely. Hello, my name is Laudan Zand. I'm from the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Uh, welcome to the second presentation titled Fresh Perspectives in Focal Segmental Glomerulosclerosis, Exploring and Addressing the Complexities of Improving Care. 
Joining me in this discussion is my colleague, Dr. Radha Krishnan from University of Columbia, New York. FSGS is a lesion and it's not a disease. But taking FSGS as a group, it's overall an uncommon, um, has an, is uncommon and has a low global incidence of about 0.8 per 100,000 per year. But it is associated with um, high rate of progression to end-stage kidney disease, about 45% over 10 years, and is associated with increased mortality. It's also similarly associated with a um, adverse effect on the quality of life in patients associated with increased anxiety, depression, poor sleep. And it also, uh, during pregnancy, uh, presence of FSGS is associated with increased risk to the patient and the fetus. So once you see that FSGS lesion, you have to look at the characteristics of the biopsy in addition to the clinical presentation of the patient to make a determination of what subtype of FSGS they have. Currently, we divide FSGS into four main categories, which include primary, secondary forms, genetic, and undetermined. And these have a vastly different underlying pathophysiology and vastly different therapeutic approaches. So in patients that we call primary FSGS, this, the disease is related to some type of a permeability circulating factor that causes diffuse podocyte damage. And so these patients typically present with diffuse food process effacement noted under electron microscopy and typically have nephrotic syndrome, which is both presence of nephrotic range proteinuria in addition to hypoalbuminemia. And because uh, this typically happens quickly, they have a sudden onset. And then we have the secondary forms of FSGS. These can be related either to a viral infection and certainly can be related to certain drugs such as interferon or pimidronate. Um, and these patients typically, if it's related to viral infection or drug-induced, have a presentation of nephrotic syndrome with diffuse food process effacement. But the most common form of secondary FSGS is what I like to call maladaptive FSGS. This is related to increased demand on the glomerulus, whether it's because you have lower number of nephrons to begin with, or it's because there is increased demand on the kidney, as could be seen in the setting of obesity. And because of that, you will have damage to the podocyte and loss of podocyte and formation of a segmental scar. And then we have the genetic form of FSGS, which is result from a mutation either in a podocyte gene or a collagen gene. And then you have a smaller portion of patients that we consider as undetermined cause, which means that um, they don't fit the primary FSGS. Um, they, there is no obvious cause for a secondary FSGS. And then after doing extensive genetic workup, that still remains negative. And again, the reason it's so important to look at these subtypes of FSGS is because the treatment is very different. And so focusing mainly on the primary FSGS, or as I like to think of it as a primary podocytopathy, this is the most recent uh, KDGO guidelines of how to think about treating these patients. The first-line therapy is still considered use of corticosteroids, uh, but certainly in patients who have uh, contraindication to using corticosteroids, using a calcineurin inhibitor such as tacrolimus or cyclosporine can certainly be a first line. If you do start with corticosteroid, you do high-dose steroids typically for about 8 to 12 weeks, and then you taper that down over a span of about 6 months. And obviously, if your patient goes into remission, then that's great news, but some patients may not be responsive to steroids, and we call those patients steroid-resistant FSGS. And in those patients, typically our second-line agent still would be a use of a calcineurin inhibitor, 
And then we do a trial of that. If the patient again goes into remission, then that's good. But again, there are a portion of patients that do not respond to CNIs either. And these would be the patients that, you know, it would be challenging to find the right treatment. And typically it's recommended that these patients do get referred to tertiary centers where, you know, there is um, possibility of enrolling in clinical trials. Some of the other drugs that may be considered in this situation would be use of mycophenolate mofetil, use of rituximab or Actor gel. But data is quite limited in this patient population. So I would like to ask you, Dr. Radhakrishna, if you can comment a bit about the role of lowering protein Thank you, Lodan. So with any glomerular disease, uh, protein reduction is a key part and a, and, a, and a very important target. So what is the level of protein reduction that will help the patient in FSGS? So the traditional definition of partial remission, which remember is, 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 is good enough, not as good as complete remission, but is good enough, is that if you are nephrotic, you should drop your UPC ratio to under 3.5 grams per gram, along with a 50% reduction in this ratio. And that is a generalized uh, definition for most glomerular disease, but it was found in a large meta-analysis that another partial remission endpoint called the FSGS partial remission endpoint may be as good as the traditional endpoint, and it gives us the advantage of predicting much earlier how the patient's going to do. So what is this endpoint, the FPRE? It is a composite of UPC ratio in the range of 0.3 to 1.5. So if you say three grams, you're gonna to drop to under 1.5 grams, along with a 40% reduction in the UPC ratio. So if you can achieve this endpoint, it is almost as good as uh, achieving a complete remission endpoint, especially over the long term. And you can see that uh, there's a, in, in the survive, Kaplan-Meier survival curves, these endpoints are quite comparable. The FPRE and complete remission is sort of equal, whereas the no remission category do not do very well. So there's a significant unmet need. How are we doing it with FSGS? Not very well. If you look at various cohorts, the Neptune cohort, the FSGS clinical trial cohort, the, uh, and you combine all these into one sort of uh, you know, uh, match, you can see that our success rate in kidney failure is, in preventing kidney failure is very poor. 60% of our patients are either needing a transplant or dialysis at the end of 10 years. And, and co correspondingly, the rates of non-remission are also quite high at about 50%. So, but there was a survey, it's called the DEFINE study, done uh, with, on practicing nephrologists both in the UK, U US, and other parts of Europe. And there were two themes that emerged. Adult nephrologists had a lot of problems with the definition of what is primary FSGS. And again, there are no good biomarkers to separate the different kinds of FSGS. And in pediatrics, the duration of steroid therapy, the consensus is not there at all. So still a lot of unmet needs in FSGS. So there have been some clinical trials. Dr. Zand, can you tell us about how these clinical trials did? What was their problems with the study design and so on? Over to you. One of the main issues, uh, as you also alluded to, in, in sort of managing patients with FSGS is the fact that we don't have a gold standard diagnostic test. 
to identify which patient has primary FSGS and which patient has secondary FSGS. As you noted, FSGS is ultimately a lesion on biopsy, and just based off of that, you cannot make a decision of what to do for the patient. You have to look at the clinical presentations and the histological findings to, to make that determination. Most of the studies that have been done in um, FSGS uh, recruit a heterogeneous group of patients. And certainly if the underlying pathophysiology is different, we can only imagine that a given therapy that may work for primary FSGS may have no response in someone with genetic FSGS or secondary FSGS. The other main issue is that at the end of the day, FSGS it has a low prevalence. And then if you're looking at those with primary FSGS, it's even a lower rate. Uh, so trying to recruit large number of patients into this clinical trial is really a challenge. And sometimes you may not have enough power to detect the difference for a given therapy. Um, and because of all of those, um, you know, these uh, many of these clinical trials have been un unsuccessful. And just to give you an example of um, this uh, NIH-funded FSGS study, which was one of the largest studies that has been done so far comparing the use of a mycophenolate malfetil in combination with dexamethasone to patients with um, use of cyclosporin. Um, at the end of the day, when you look at the complete rate of complete and partial remission, there was really no difference um, between the two. But then if you look, take a closer look at who were the patients that were recruited in this study, you can see that the injury criteria for protein urea was about just more than a gram. Um, uh, based on the UPCR, more than a gram per gram, and about 50 of the percent of the patient's protein urea was less than four gram. So that automatically tells us that majority of these patients actually did not have nephrotic syndrome at the time of enrollment, which would argue that maybe there were some patients with maladaptive FSGS or genetic FSGS recruited in this study. Um, similarly, there was no mention of the degree of albumin, serum albumin, or an evaluation of the electron microscopy. So thank you. So I think, you know, we have seen that steroids, you know, does work in a few patients, but we have to go through a lot of uh, pain and suffering to extend the course for, you know, four to six months. It's a, it's a lot of heavy, it's a big burden on the patient. So what else can we do? We try conservative therapy with uh, RAS inhibition, but one emerging therapy again is Parsentan, tested in a phase two study called the DUET trial, where compared to Herbisartan, they showed there was a more significant rate of uh, reduction of uh, of proteinuria and also the rate of of the FSGS partial remission endpoint was also significantly higher with sparsentan and then this led to the phase 3 study called the duplex and again this compared sparsentan to herbisartan and in this the study design was a little different from say the IGA nephropathy trials with sparsentan where the, the composite endpoint of a reduction in proteinuria, as well as the stabilization of the slope of the EGFR from week six through 108 were tested. And so the idea was that if you reduce proteinuria, you should see a change or a flattening of the EGFR slope. Uh, unfortunately, the Study did show a reduction in proteinuria, but the EGFR slope was not changed. So this led to the drug not being approved as this far uh, by the FDA. This looked at patients with biopsy-proven primary FSGS, or importantly, they did include genetic FSGS uh, in the series. The minimum proteinuria was more than 
uh, 1.5 grams per gram, and they needed to have an intact GFR above 30 mils per minute and reasonably well controlled blood pressure. So one should be, we were needed to be sure that there was no secondary condition and especially type one diabetes or uncontrolled type two diabetes. So like I said, it did not reach its endpoint, and uh, we are still looking at the post-hoc analysis of perhaps uh, which subgroup might have benefited in this study. But this is the only large study, phase three study of FSGS that has been published this far in the recent years. Well, thank you very much for that. So again, it's really important to remember that FSGS uh, when you see that on a biopsy, it's just a lesion. It's not a disease. And so far, we do not have any good biomarkers to differentiate between primary and secondary. So what we are left with is taking a look at the histology in addition to the clinical presentation to make a determination. And ultimately, studies in patients with primary FSGS um, have been um, difficult to conduct because of the low prevalence and the difficulty uh, for uh, properly selecting the patients. And, uh, you know, as long as we make no changes in how we categorize the patients and how we enroll the patients, we're not going to be able to make progress in this field. Um, so hopefully, uh, as we move along, we can do better with our patient selection and also through collaborations with different centers, allowing for enrollment of larger population of patients to look for effective, effective treatments in these patients. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.